There are two reasons why I hate being called a futurist. The first one is captured best by Cory Doctorow's quote. Quote, I make no claim to predicting the future. I make up stories. Stories are better than predictions. Predictions tell us that the future is inevitable. Stories tell us that the future is up for grabs. End of quote. The second reason is that every time I talk to professionals, such as my friend John Smart, I suffer serious bouts of imposter syndrome because I can't help but realize that after 17 years of studying the field, I know nearly nothing about it. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply going to interviewthefuture.com and becoming a patron. My guest today is John Smart. John has thought and written for over 20 years on topics like foresight and futurism, as well as the drivers, opportunities, and the problems of exponential processes throughout human history. John is the president of the Acceleration Studies Foundation, the co-founder of the Evo Devo Research or Evo Devo Research Community, and CEO of Foresight University. Most recently, John is the author of Introduction to Foresight, which is this beauty right here. And in my view, this book, Introduction to Foresight, is a one-of-a-kind, all-in-one instruction manual, methodological encyclopedia, and daily work Bible for both amateur and professional futurists and foresighters. So, welcome to Singularity FM, John. It is an honor to be here, Nicola, and you had me on 10 years ago, after my first 10 years as a, as a foresighter, and now here we are 10 years later in my second decade of this, of this uh, career. It's so wonderful to see all of the work you have done in the last 10 years, and uh, I really enjoy the opportunity to share, share my thoughts on foresight as well. So, thank you. Thank you, John. And... The work that you have done, let us not forget, because this is the reason why we are here today. And as I said, this is phenomenal work. It's very dense, but it's very rewarding. I think I would be rereading it, honestly, because there is so much packed in it in such a little space. And we're going to talk about this today. However, let me start with something a little simple. If you had to introduce yourself, John, in one sentence... Who is John Smart? Got five fingers, so I've done that exercise before. What are the five things that kind of most make up me? And I would say I'm an educator, an entrepreneur, I'm a foresight coach, I'm a complexity researcher, and I'm a husband and dad. Of course, I cheated, husband, dad, those are really two things, but uh, I put them all together. I'm, uh, uh, I'm in a family. And, and you do have a wonderful family. And I have to say, when me and Julie were doing this road trip from Arizona, from Phoenix, Arizona, all through uh, California, was it in 2015 or 2016? We had the pleasure of actually visiting your family, and that was wonderful. 
It was just so much fun. My wife enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was so wonderful. I'm looking forward to have another one of those. <laughs> Thank you. That was really fun. And um, I think uh, your wife saw the library I have uh, here, which is now in, in my garage office, two-car garage office. I've got this huge library on all the walls. And uh, we had that fun conversation about, you know, how do you read all those books? And I said, well, I don't read them. I treat them like movies. And I spend, you know, one, uh, one to three hours with each one. I sit down and I just jump through it and I make that little index on the inside front cover of the book, right? Just make a nice little index of all the cool things I found. And, uh, and that is my record. That's my movie. And so I just try and make a movie once with each of these books. And then if the book calls to me, in my dreams later, I'll pull it down and read it old school. But most books, we don't have time to do that. There's too many great books out there. And I do recommend reading a book like a movie. It's a, I've got a four page, it's called interval reading. And I've got a four page or sprint reading is the other term. I got four pages on uh, how to do that in my book. So yeah, it's a, that was fun having that conversation with her about that. Um, you know, books are amazing. Uh, you know, if I was, Erasmus Darwin said, uh, "If I ha if I uh, have money, I I I um, spend it on books, and then if any left over, clothes and food." <laughs> John, as you said, it's been ten years since our previous conversation. So, what, in your view, have been the biggest tech changes for that past decade since we last talked? Yeah, well, for me, that's pretty easy because you and I are both focused on these major changes in kind of human and technical intelligence, the singularity, general AI. So, you know, it, it right after you and I had our conversation, uh, deep learning started beating the pants off of all of the engineered forms of AI uh, in the uh, in the NIST competitions. And ever since the old school way of building AI, uh, it doesn't work anymore. I mean, it works, but it's nothing compared to growing and training these neural nets. So I would say that's the big, big change. Um, smartphone revolution, of course, which was just before, you know, it was 2009 really was when that took off just a year before we got together. Uh, you know, that has enabled all the tech titans and all the major titanic changes we've seen, the tech superstars and unicorns. I've got some slides. I might give you a little overview of that later. But um, yeah, deep learning number one. Uh, it validated the thesis, which has been around for quite a while, that, and, and this is what I call the natural intelligence hypothesis. And the thesis is the fastest way to get generally useful AI is going to be biomimicry deep neuro and bio inspiration neuro inspiration to understand how these how this incredible you know 100 trillion unique synaptic connections work and all the various circuits and modules and bio inspiration to understand how is that system built selected and then rebuilt in an evolutionary developmental cycle and so my argument is that natural intel that AI has to become NI and that there's only one way through. And if that's true, there's going to be a big shift in people's view of the future of intelligence, 
human and artificial. Right now, folks like Peter Thiel believe this idea that there's um, animal sentience, various varieties of it, human sentience. He has this graph that he's done. Human sentience is this tiny circle inside of a larger circle of animal sentience. And then machine sentience is this massive circle that could include all kinds of interesting algorithms and non-biological things. My view is different. My view is that it started with this general computational sentience of simple cells, and then it narrowed in on bacterial sentence a sentience with this much more specific DNA-guided protein synthesis. And then it narrowed further to higher animals, mammalian uh, uh, cortex, and then it narrowed to humans. And in the process, there's always a slight new field that's opened up. So these are narrowing, but they're moving in a particular direction. So there's a little bit of overlap. And then machine sentience is going to do the same thing. It's going to narrow in further and open up a little bit further on one end, but it's basically a narrowing in on a set of fundamental constraints that work incredibly well at keeping all these complex actors knitted together. And of course, that I've just described the developmental perspective. There's an evolutionary capacity that each of these systems has. You can think of it as a fan out from each of those circles. And the fan out from simple cells goes very, only the next adjacent is very small. And then you move up the, up the ladder and there's more and more interesting creative things, unpredictable things. Bacteria do all kinds of interesting, unpredictable things, but they're very limited in their agency. You and I have vastly more agency. These AIs are gonna have vastly more agency, but their developmental features are gonna be constrained into these special, systems that work incredibly well. Our Evo Devo Universe community published a paper, uh, you know, reminding people that neural networks were invented three times on Earth by bilaterians, comb jellies, and jellyfish. And they're three different neural network transmitter systems if you look at them anatomically. And yet that's what cells, populations of cells are going to invent if they want to coordinate the action of all of these massive numbers of cells. And so my argument is that that's kind of an inevitable thing. And so the approach DeepMind is taking of all the various AI companies, where they say, we really have to deeply understand the modules of the brain and try and module by module add these features. My argument is that's the right approach. That's the right, that's the one that's gonna bear fruit and so the interesting implications of that, we could talk about later and we will in the future, but one of them is these things are going to have emotions. Until, until you have AIs that have not only compositional logic, which deep learners don't have today, but actual emotions so that they have a gut feeling of what to do when they're in a logical log jam, which you and I get into all the time because logic is so weak compared to the combinatorial explosions of possibilities of reality. What do we do? We have a gut instinct. And Damasio's, uh, Descartes' error by Antonio Damasio studied those people that have lesions in their amygdala, so they can't, they, they have no access to their gut feeling. And they do 
you know, what you'd expect a hyper-rationalist to do. They just argue with each other endlessly over, I could do this, I could do that, and they don't make a decision. So my argument is the future AIs, and the, Richard Yonk has described this in his book, The Heart of the Machine. He's a futurist that'd be worth bringing on if you haven't had him yet, Richard Yonk, The Heart of the Machine. He talks about the future of emotional intelligence in AI. These things are going to have to have gut feelings. And so if you say that, well, okay, so they got to copy those circuits. They got to figure out how to do that. They got to have these state summaries. There are going to be these rough statistical, you know, inclinations they have. Well, are they going to have, are they going to have um, ethics like ours? I would argue yes. Statistical ethics where they police their bad actors. Are they going to have beliefs that they can't prove about the future and their relationship to the universe? what Kurzweil calls religious rituals? Yes, I would argue they have to have that too. I would argue that, that because of these developmental constraints, yes, they're going to have all these new evolutionary capabilities, but their developmental constraints are going to keep them in that direction. So for me, this has been a big validation, the advances of, of deep learning. And the last thing I want to say about that, the recent articles by folks like Gary Marcus, who's a colleague of mine, uh, that deep learning is starting to peter out, even with transformers and, well, I shouldn't say even with. Without transformers, deep learning is starting to peter out because it's only one of the circuits we need to copy. And so, yes, transformers are going to give us all these interesting new capabilities. They're going to reinvigorate it for a while, but still that's going to be on an S-curve. If that model is correct, you know, Demis Hassabis, who you should bring on, you know, he's going to say, bring more, what are the, what's the next modules we need? So for me, there's been a big validation. And then now there's a further recent validation that we need to keep going further into this natural intelligence space. Yeah, I've had Gary Marcus twice on the podcast so far, uh, and it was fun. Uh, but let me ask you, and we'll, we're going to come back to, to AI a little bit further down the conversation, but let me ask you, you told me all the things that kind of happened on the tech side which were not really a surprise. Let me ask you, was there something that you expected that was going to happen, but didn't, that was kind of a disappointment or a surprise of a kind? Yes, I would say that uh, China's kind of a tendency toward totalitarianism has been a big surprise. I expected China to, uh, you know, keep rocketing ahead. We talked about that 10 years ago, that they were out investing us in nanotech and infotech even then. Um, I didn't expect them to turn so for far into this kind of control mode because they are actually really hurting their ability for their standards to be adopted globally. Uh, you know, there was a there was a hot moment about two years ago when everyone thought maybe, you know, a lot of these Chinese uh, IT groups are going to start setting global standards. And but since they've continued to go further into this kind of you know, social credit and, and surveillance and control, particularly of the Uyghurs and these other groups. And now we're worried. Now we're scared. And particularly since Ukraine, I think that's the big, big wake up everyone has had that there are, again, these two competing open and closed ways of using technology. And I didn't expect them to go as far into the control. And I think they're going to continue to go further in that direction, you know, regulating their, their tech titans and, and such. And, uh, you know, that is a bit of a gift to us economically, but morally it's concerning. Morally, it's quite concerning because now we 
we can see that that approach, that closed approach is being enabled by the biggest, most powerful uh, tech actor besides the, the United States. Yeah, I, I think it's it's actually even worse. Uh, and we're witnessing right now a new geopolitical realignment of the world and a new kind of a post post Cold War uh, decoupling, perhaps is the word. And and the scariest part is is so first China uh, during the the Olympics, President Xi Jinping uh, publicly kind of welcomed his best of friends, Vladimir Putin, and said during the Olympic opening ceremony and and right before that that Russia is China's best friend of all their friends in the world, and in particular President Vladimir Putin. He said that at a time when pretty much um, he must have known that Putin is about to invade Ukraine. I'm going to disagree with that. I'm going to agree with everything you said right up to that point. Okay, and let me just finish, though. And now it's getting worse. So maybe you can argue he didn't know the invasion of the Ukraine, which I think there's lots of evidence suggesting otherwise, but let's assume he might not have. Right now, you have this kind of decoupling between the West, uh, economically speaking, and Russia. So you have something already like 250 businesses that have left Russia. And the Beijing uh, ambassador to Russia has basically told their uh, Chinese businesses that right now it's the perfect time to invest for the Chinese industries and businesses to go invest in Russia because the West has moved out and is now created this kind of a vacuum. And it's the perfect opportunity for Chinese business to go in and fill that vacuum. And that is kind of the, the new geopolitical realignment that I'm concerned about because what happens here is on the one hand you have Russia which is the most, the largest uh, country in the world in terms of territory. On the other hand, you have China, which is the most populous country in the world in terms of mere numbers. One point, uh, what is it now? One point two, or is it one point five billion Chinese? Closer to one point five or four. Yeah, one point five. I thought that's right. And so you have the most populous and the largest country in the world realigning together all at the same time while President Vladimir Putin is, is cre creating this kind of most destructive, most aggressive war in Europe since World War II. Um, and so this combined with the fact that, you know, Russia doesn't shriek away from clearly using its military power, even though it's not paying its dividend at the moment. And China has this kind of economic, technological, and demographic power on its side, it can create very serious decoupling between the, the West on the one hand, the Europeans, the Americans, and China and Russia on the other hand. So let me make a parable here. We had uh, a thousand years of the Dark Ages in the West. What did civilization as a network do, as an evolutionary and developmental network? Civilization just kept accelerating. That's the mystery of accelerating change. What happened when the West shrunk? 
was the uh, there was already enough recording with books and scrolls of of knowledge that uh, repositories from Alexandria and other places in the uh, on the Mediterranean just migrated all that uh, all of that quest for learning to uh, the Middle Eastern countries. And so we saw Arabic scholars make some major advances in medicine and science and technology uh, while the West shrunk. And it is quite possible, I mean, you can simplify the argument slightly and say, I'm going to take a slightly uh, right-wing perspective here. We gave away our manufacturing base in America to the first wave of crude globalization, first um, first um, IT-aided wave of globalization. Germany did not. So Germany maintained a strong manufacturing base and education base. And America went backwards for a while. We had a bit, a bit of a mini dark ages for 50 years. And so that's why folks like Trump can be, can be elected because the, our middle class went backwards uh, for quite some time. And that was an interesting bargain we made. But now that bargain's over, and now we're seeing it over because we do not believe the values that China is employing in its society. It's not liberalizing the way we had hoped it would, as its middle class has, as fast as we would hope it would. And so now we're going to have to take a page from Germany and reindustrialize and reshore and relocalize. And there'll be this decoupling. Is it really that bad? Does the network itself suffer? I would argue it's actually beneficial to have a certain amount of this decoupling because then we're going to strengthen ourselves again. And then the countries that go inward, as we all know, at a certain point, they just get outcompeted by the ones that are open. They get completely outcompeted and they become, um, in terms of the future, the real future of um, politics, of economic interaction, of culture, they become more and more like a, like a North Korean hermit economy. And then they eventually have to liberalize. China looks at the hundred years uh, where it kind of turned inward uh, as the great humiliation. It's doing it, it's, it's doing it to itself again in a small way. It thinks it's just being kind of good morals. It, th it thinks, you know, unity first. That's its value, right? Unity first, innovation second. So it thinks it's kind of doing the right things, but the West is looking at that and saying, no, that's actually not good morals. You're, you've taken it way too far. You've taken, you're, you're, you're delaying these freedoms of individual self-determination and political expression that all these subcultures want. You're doing it because you don't want to fraction into a zillion little cultures. We understand that, but you've taken it way too far and this decoupling is going to hurt you. But will the network lose? In my you know lay opinion looking at this, I would draw that analogy to the dark ages and say, no, the network always wins. That's the interesting thing about accelerating change is if it's happening in a diverse evolutionary developmental network, somebody's going to be losing. It could be half the world, as you're saying, but it's not anymore. In the 80s, it was half the world under communism, right? Half of the world, 50% of the world's people. 
that's gone. It's now this shrunken subset of what it used to be. Five million, uh, four and a half million of the best Russians have left Russia since it collapsed 30 years ago. The same thing is happening to Ukraine right now, but in hyperspeed, all the best and people with the most prospects are leaving and they need, they need you know, support as emigres. And then of all the poor people who are left behind in these fatalistic countries, right, who are stuck. And I would say if China thinks it's going to be able to develop Russia the way it developed, say, Africa, right, the nine countries that it moved into Africa, and it looked at them and it said, oh, my gosh, this is Chinese hinterland 25 years ago. So there's 1,500 com uh, companies, Chinese-owned companies in in these nine countries in Africa, and they're rapidly uplifting those countries because they looked at those subcultures within Africa and they said, these particular countries, there's a lot of kids that want to work. There's a lot of opportunity. I'm going to hire these African managers. And now a few of those African managers have actually gone and started their own entrepreneurship. They've left those Chinese country companies after training in, in, in Chinese firms. And now they're doing entrepreneurial tech in Africa. And the book, The Next Factory of the World, um, you know, by a, uh, I forget her name, um, uh, the McKinsey consultant who was over there, uh, is a good example of that. If they think you're going to do next, next factory of the world in China or in Russia, they, they are sadly mistaken because there's really only a small subset of places in Russia where they could do that. And yes, maybe that'll help and maybe they'll uplift it a little bit. But the truth is these are becoming, uh, these countries are, are hurting themselves. And I would say now, Xi Jinping is uh, he's looking at what they're doing, you know, what Putin is doing, and he's seeing the pariah that he's becoming. And he is definitely going to backpedal on that buddy buddy thing. That That's my guess as to what's going to happen. He's going to backpedal on it. And I really hope so. I really hope so. My concern is that if you look at Chinese propaganda at home, domestically speaking, they're a hundred percent protecting the Russians. They have refused to condemn the Russian invention. They have actually. I, I would argue embedded... that's good. That's just good politics, though. To to have that to have that silly propaganda is just good politics. Like you say, the action is what matters. The action. Are they going to do that action you described or not? Sure, but you set up your action with the kind of story you're telling, and the story they're telling right now in China is very different than the story you would hear in the West, and it's very similar to the story you would hear in Moscow. And not only that, but they have embedded reporters, Chinese embedded reporters into the Russian forces in the Ukraine so that they don't rely on any outside information. It's a complete propaganda machine, unfortunately, right yes, now. But if, you're familiar, but if you're familiar with the, fall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know that the story told and the reality of action on the ground were two different things for about 50 years. It just, the action just kept getting further and further from the story. So I understand your point, and uh, it is a good question in the modern world where there's so much more tech enhancements to story. Will story stick longer, uh, or will the actions continue to speak much louder than the words? I mean, uh, we saw all those people leave Russia, uh, the best and the brightest. We're going to see the best and the brightest leave poor Ukraine and Moldova if they take that too. But, uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're, in a, they're in a box. Uh, I, I actually visited Russia just a few years ago with my wife, and we took that train from St. Petersburg to Moscow, which is the Russian speed train. And actually, th that now is the route out. P 
people from Moscow take the train to St. Petersburg, and then there's buses and trains to Helsinki, and then they take planes from every to everywhere else in the world from there. So that that's the path that many Russians, smart Russians, are living now. But what? Well, I'm going to make a plug. Not? I'm going to make a plug for citizen diplomacy. You know that big concept we had back in the height of the Cold War that we can reach out to individuals and help them, even in these countries where their ethics are completely different from ours. You and I can do that with these emigres. Uh, we want to adopt a. Uh, our family wants to adopt one of these um, Ukrainian uh, refugee families in Poland, and we're we're working on that right now, trying to find out how to do that. A particular family with young kids like ours, so our kids can get to see, as you say, the 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 greatest war since uh, since the Second World War in Europe. The the, the most. Um, the most egregious. I mean, obviously we had Balkans and uh, the '90s, and but this is another scale, another level entirely, yeah. and uh, they're gonna get punished. So I'm very looking forward to doing my small part to try and help. You know, like you're saying, these people who were in the in the crossfires, we can all do that. Small number of people relative to the 330 million Americans. I, I am kind of surprised that the ability for me to adopt a family in that way doesn't exist. I can, quote, save a child through save the children, but I can't adopt a family. And, you know, I, I want to sponsor, excuse me. Now, sponsor right. means have them come into our country. So that's the, the wrong technical word, but it's something similar to that. Support. Support might right. be the right word. But. That's very commendable of you. Uh, it's amazing. I, I wish more people would do that. I, I've been trying to help. I had a friend in Mariupol, uh, which was like the worst uh, kind of, and people are going to make, make movies about them probably in a year or two because Mariupol is right next to Crimea and it got surrounded in the first 24 hours. Um, no water, no electricity, no in and out movement. And I had a friend who was stuck there for 14 days uh, and I was trying to help him get out. Unfortunately, now he's behind Russian lines because the, the, the circle around Mariupol is closing and closing. And now it's gotten to the point where it's kind of a house to house kind of combat. And the, the Russian circle has already passed his house. So he was uh, behind, quote, enemy lines in that sense. And then the only way that he could escape was actually... Uh, towards further into the Russian-controlled territories. So now he's hiding in a basement somewhere. I don't want to say where, and we're look, working with a group of people trying to see if we can find a way to, to either send him to Western Europe or to North America. But but what, what shocked me, though, is because you're talking about that citizen democracy uh, or diplomacy, is that I had this kind of very disappointing conversation with a very, with a, Russian transhumanist, and actually there's a few Russian transhumanists that exhibited similar behavior, uh, and a few who didn't, which was nice. But like you said, you know, during communism, I grew up in communist Bulgaria behind the, the Iron Curtain. I was 14 years old when the, the, the Iron Curtain collapsed. Um, and so I know this kind of cynicism. I have it in me towards the government and towards the propaganda that you're being fed and this kind of natural skepticism that we had about it. And so I presumed 
that the Russians would feel exactly like we felt in Bulgaria when we knew that our communist government was feeding us lies and we didn't believe it. So that was my starting presumptions. The Russians, especially the smarter ones, which are my connections supposedly on Facebook and other transhumanists, would doubt the, the official Russian propaganda. I was shocked to find out that they have completely bought it, most of them. There are some notable exceptions, but most of them. And, and it got so bad that I had this conversation with, with, with the Russian transhumanist. And you know, if you're transhumanist, you're supposed to be transnational. You're supposed to be beyond nationalism. Yes, FM, FM 2030's uh, uh, view of the world. Yes, I, I'm not a citizen. I'm a citizen of the planet. Yeah. Right, that's the Socratic Socratic view, if you will. I I was born an Athenian, but I'm a citizen of the world. Uh, so that's just the you know version 2.0. The transhumanist view is version 2.0. But I was shocked to find out that Valeria was giving me exactly the Russian propaganda and was sending me some some faked pictures about that that uh, uh, maternity wing that got bombed in Mariupol with Nazi flags inside and it wasn't a maternity wing, but it was like, you know, something else and there were Nazi flags, flags in inside. Well, Nazi you're making inside. exactly that point that because of the modern digital media and the ability to uh, rapidly proliferate, you know, fake news, uh, false flags on social media, perhaps this new generation is more easily swayed than the previous generation. Another way of looking at it, it could be just they've had a longer amount of fatalism in that country. That country has been broken for a much longer period of time. Um, and so and the propaganda is much stronger. And I was shocked how effective it seemed to be inside of Russia. So I think that is that is a very sad, sad thing. And, uh, you know, it will be overcome, but only through education and primarily through education of the next generation and the emigres. And as you say, the, the, the few that have managed to resist it within that country that, you know, I think, I think there's ways out of it, but like you say, it could be, we could be stuck for a long time. My daughter is going to do a, a Ukraine, a, a collection pot. She's six years old and she's building a box for Ukrainian donations. And she's putting it out on our front lawn. Instead of instead of selling uh, lemonade, she's collecting dollars for these Ukrainian families. She's six years old. And she decided to do it. I just showed her the videos of what was going on and we talked about it. So I have huge faith in the youth. I think they're going to fix this. And if you want to see a fantastic video, all of, your, all of you uh, listeners and, and watchers here, Watch Maidan. Watch the 2014 movie Maidan yeah, or Maidan yeah. about the Euromaidan yeah, movement in 2013, yeah. 2014 in Ukraine and fighting in the streets, man. And they pivoted the whole country hardcore to Europe. And now, you know, Putin's trying to make them pay the price. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so take the big picture view and see that and see that, uh, you know, in the end, uh, people win. Mass movements win. But it takes a lot. It takes a lot, and uh, Maidan shows you shows you how. Yeah, Maidan shows you the kind of sacrifices required. And thank goodness we have someone the, somewhere in the order of fifteen thousand American uh, ex American uh, military that are over fighting in Ukraine right now, and some several thousand uh, uh, British uh, Australians. Um, 
I'm sure there's some folks from uh, Southeast Asia. It's going to be really interesting to see who actually went over. There's a very famous Canadian sniper who is supposedly to be the deadliest sniper alive right now who went there on the first day. I think it's brilliant. It's, it shows you the power of the network, right? The networks always win. You know, you and I are not immortal, my friend. I know we want to be, but the network's been immortal forever since the first replicating cell. Networks always win. And that's central to my second book, which I know we'll eventually talk about. It's the big picture foresight. So, Right. John, we, we had a kind of a, I, I think it's it was still a valuable uh, diversion, but but it was a diversion. Yes, sir. So yeah, we're going to get back to back on track. Yeah, let's go back on track, which is your your book here, Introduction to Foresight. So let me ask you, who is your book for? So that's pretty simple. It's written for two groups, students and leaders, and anyone who thinks of themselves as either. And you can lead your family, you can lead, uh, you know, uh, any group. You can lead yourself. You always start with self-leadership by having a vision for your own life and, a, and some kind of a plan. And uh, we're all students, but at different levels. Some of us are autodidacts, which is people who believe we can teach ourselves just about anything that matters. So this is primarily for the student and the leader who is more of a self-leader and, and an autodidact. And this is the executive edition, which is the short version that has six chapters missed. <laughs> There's six chapters more in the student edition. And they're all about like things that students should know that leaders don't necessarily need to know, like all these traps you can get in and misapplying foresight. And it's also a tutorial on how organ and how the firm works, you know, 12 departments of the firm. And it's got it's got some more advice, general advice for students. But um, at 280 pages, the executive edition is still a great, great first start for people, even students who just want to get a sense of what foresight is and just how important it is to the world, which I know is one of your future questions. So I'll, I'll hold off until, until that. Yeah. And, and you cheated a little bit because your pages are large size, my friend. And okay. Found, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to disagree. I'm going to argue that eight and a half by 11, which is a global st or a universe, a U.S. standard for <laughs> articles. That, that should be the standard for, for serious books, in my opinion. So I know but it's, it's big. I know it's big, but it's not. Everyone wants to have these smaller books. And so I think it should be bigger. And I also think that books today should be full of links. This book is full of links. Now, if you get the dead tree version, you look at them, you say, I can't click on that link. Hey, why did you put a link there? I put the link there to show you there's more information if you want it. Go ahead and get the 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 um digital version yeah. as well or get a free pdf from me email me and i'll send you one and click on those links and then dive into some of the rabbit holes because foresight is vast it's a vast topic how we look to the future all the ways we can and i think that modern books should all have those links in them and uh you know, a bunch of them are linked to wikipedia the greatest single source of community knowledge that's been built so far besides the web itself and so yeah go ahead dive in and don't be scared of you know eight and a half by 11 280 pages because it's and uh you small know font. <laughs> <laughs> well it's nine nine is that standard 
Wow, nine, I don't know. I usually stick to 11, maybe even 12. So nine is another, what, 20% smaller. You know what? That's a good, you know what? Maybe I'll redo it. Maybe I'll redo it to 10 for you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what's your thesis or your main argument? The main thesis is that uh, foresight is one of the three fundamental things that define human beings. And you really want to grapple with that and own it. And uh, the three fundamental things are head, hand, and heart, as um, uh, some of the uh, social activists like to say. We have a head with a forebrain that can look ahead and imagine in detail and predict in detail and scheme for things we want to get to make ourselves and the world better. Hand, we have these incredible things. We have two oppose, two prehensile limbs that can grasp, and we have opposable thumbs on the end of that. It's fractal, right? This and this. And that lets us manipulate tools. And they make us, as a transhumanist would say, more than our biological self. The very first tool we picked up, a sharp rock, made us more than our biological self. And we've been becoming more transhuman ever since or more excuse i would call it more human ever since the, the thing the thing about a human is we're a verb we're always becoming something more than our biological self and then the third thing is heart you and i are deeply pro-social animals we cooperate first and compete second i know we're going to talk about that later that's coopetition but the, the critical thing to remember is four million years ago Australopithecus were being eaten by these powerful leopards. They would grab us by the, our heads and drag us away. They found these holes in the top of little Australopithecus skull that perfectly matched the leopard's teeth. So we know they would just grab us like a cat grabs a mouth and, and, mouse and eat us when we came down from the trees. And then four million years ago, suddenly there's these large quarries where they we found 10,000 of these old Wan tools a graspable rock that has a sharp tip. And so humans, from the very beginning, as soon as we figured out with our head that we could, and our hands, that we could make these sharp tools, we used our heart to distribute them to everybody else, man. So when we came down to get some food, all of us were holding these, traveling in groups. And suddenly we were the baddest ass things on the savannah. Didn't, we didn't have to be faster, thicker skinned. We'd just start using head, hand, and heart to make these things even more powerful, put them on the ends of spears, making, you know, the whole the whole nine yards, man. Acceleration off to the races. But the heart, it's easy to forget that. We really are pro-social first, cooperate first, then try and compete within a set of cooperating rules. And if we recognize that, that empathy and ethics are at the center of humans, then we can ground our foresight and our technological action, our head and our hand. So. Of the greatest of all three of those gifts, I would argue, and I'm biased, of course, is head, is that we we have this capacity. Suddenly we woke up and we could see, we could imagine the future. And we predict it, we um, try and imagine it or create around it, and then we try and preference. And those are the three main ways that we we grapple with, with uh, our, our, uh, the future with our imaginations. So, what is foresight then? How do you define it? 
And perhaps just for clarity, how is foresight different from futurism, or is it? So um, future, our field likes to likes to break foresight down into two things. There's there's the foresight practice, and then there's uh, futures thinking and stories. So we call one foresight and the other futures. So if you use any kind of practice, any methods, and you share them with each other, that's foresight. If you have any models for how you should do it, that's foresight. If you tell stories and you try and critique them with each other about the future, that's futures or futurism. If you do it in an academic setting, it's called futurology. Um, but the reality is it's it's all foresight. It's foresight. Uh, applied right and foresight um, output and so if you like to consume foresight output or generate it yourself you're a futurist or you love futures and if you are interested in the practice of it and helping people see the bigger picture of it that's foresight and so that's really what this book is it's primarily a set of tools for individuals, for teams, and for organizations. And I'd love to get into those, give you kind of a little overview when you're ready. I've got, I don't know, like a small number of slides I could just throw up. Uh... Sure, sure. Let, let me just go through a couple of other things here because I think they're valuable. So first of all, uh, let me uh, bring in a couple of quotes from you. Uh, in the book, you, def you define foresight as, quote, humanity's greatest gift. Foresight is the act of looking to and thinking about the future. Now, I also read this fantastic paper of yours, which I also recommend, and I'm going to put the link to it. I don't know if it's public, though, so if it is public, I'll put a link to it. It is, yes. Okay, it's called Exponential Progress, Thriving in an Era of, Accel of Accelerating Change. And in that paper, you have another definition, which is also very useful, I find, and that's called we can define strategic foresight as being most essentially about just three things, discovering and predicting the probable, taking advantage and guarding against the possible, and steering and leading toward the preferable as we understand them. End of quote. So I, I love those because I think they're probably the best, most succinct and perhaps useful definitions of foresight that I've I've read so far. Um, but let me just ask you before we go into some slides, perhaps, what is then the difference between a futurist and a foresighter? So a futurist is someone who is uh, who likes talk, telling future stories. And uh, if you do it in a group, people are going to call, call you that, uh, whether you want it to be called that or not. And a foresighter is somebody who is... Uh, tasked or paid by others to look to and analyze any aspect of the future. And that has to be far enough ahead or in enough detail in the short term that uncertainty matters. So it can't just be some kind of, uh, say, engineering analysis in building a bridge where you're applying all of these known models and you're just extrapolating that out. That's not foresight. That's engineering or physics or whatever you want to call it. But uh, it has to have grapple with uncertainty. And so foresight could be, you know, you could be doing foresight work in an equity trading uh, firm uh, on the horizon of a few days. 
or weather prediction in, on a horizon of a week or two. Or, or geo, geopolitics, as we discussed. Yeah, geopolitics. Uh, you could be doing it for uh, long-term climate modeling for you know hundreds of years. So foresight is anything where you are tasked or paid to do that, to look to and analyze the future. And you, it's not about necessarily telling stories around that. That's a very important thing, as you've been beautifully illustrating. And it motivates us deeply to have a story for ourselves and for the world and to change our stories, to question our stories. But uh, that is in the futures side of things, the futurism and futurist side. And like I was saying, that label can be put on you whether you want it to be or not. You can say, oh, I'm not a futurist. And I was like, no, yes, you are. <laughs> You're talking about the future. I don't talk about the future. I don't care about the future. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I like uh, Corey's, Corey's kind of idea about storytelling. And then would it seem that in essence, Corey's quote that I started today, today's podcast with is a way in favor of futurism and a criticism of foresight, perhaps? No, I wouldn't say necessarily. It, it, it could be interpreted that, yes. But I would argue that uh, we actually make up stories about the three P's you talked about, the possible, the probable, the possible, and the preferable. Now, Corey doesn't like to say that his stories include the probable. I would argue he's being a little bit disingenuous. I can actually tease out in his stories things he's saying about the probable, about the possible, and about the preferable. In fact, he's saying... He actually splits the preferable, as everyone should do, into the preferred and the preventable. Because we want to tell, we want to, we actually tend and to tell ourselves more dystopias than we tell ourselves protopias. We're usually nine to one in the in the common uh, um, engineering, or sorry, uh, entertainment that we might watch on Netflix are dystopia over protopia. It's it's very helpful for us to know what not to steer toward. And it's often easier to do that than it is to know what to steer for. So to understand regression, we can understand progression. So I would say all he does all of those. Now, the word prediction, people have a people get their their feathers all up, their back all up over that word. And he also throws in his quote the word inevitable. Unfortunately, there's a whole bunch of things about the universe that are inevitable. We started discovering them, you know, in the 1600s with celestial mechanics. Then we discovered them 150 years ago with second law of thermodynamics. And we discovered more with nuclear decay uh, and, and, um, and uh, relativity. A whole bunch of things that are predictable. And then, of course, that's just physics. On top of that, it's biology, chemistry. Uh, sorry, chemistry, biology, social predictability, all kinds of predictable trends and you know, globalization and liberalization. So predictable, you, you really do, to be honest, you got to use that word, but in a broad sense, very often, it's an envelope of predictability. So I'm going to agree. I'm going to agree with that. That's definitely the way you have to look at it. So it's inevitable, but in a statistical sense, it might not be inevitable in this country. My argument would be it's inevitable in the network. In the network, you can show this inevitable accelerating change. Someone somewhere is going to keep accelerating. 
And that's not because necessarily just human in invention. It's because the physics of the universe allow this crazy acceleration when we dive inward, back to our discussion of Moore's law and such in our last talk. So that would be my sense is the future is up for grabs. Yes, I agree with that. It's mostly created by us. Mostly we get to choose the path. But there are these, let's call them, let's call them the framework of the painting. That framework is pretty strong. It's going to constrain us. You and I are going to, you know, it's pretty obvious all these demographic things about what our lives are going to be like that we can predict right now and we can make a lot of money selling insurance around it. So, yes, those will be changed through, you know, small amounts. Uh, there'll be small changes to a lot of that stuff, uh, you know, with longevity medicine and such. But in general, we're built to fall apart from the inside out at an accelerating rate after sexual maturity. And we're imperfect error correctors at the molecular scale. That will be fixed by some future AI that goes into the quantum level and meddles, meddles with the genes. But that's a post I like to call that a post-singularity uh, uh, scenario. In the, in, the, in the interim, there's all this amazing predictability and, I'm going to use that word that he might not like, inevitability, right? It's inevitability relative to the uh, environment in which the selection is happening. And of course, there's many different selection environments and then different kinds of ethics that apply. You know, if you and I were going to... Uh, you know, Ukraine, we'd be packing a gun probably, but we wouldn't pack a gun in, uh, you know, downtown New York, right? So. Well, probably for the Ukraine, we'll need a javelin or two. But, uh, you know, I'll do something that I don't usually do in my interviews here, John, and I'm going to step back and I'm just going to let you walk us in the most efficient, because I think that's going to be probably the best and most efficient uh, way I'm going to let you walk us through kind of the gist or the core uh, concepts and models of the book that you want to share with us today. And then once you're done, we're going to step back here to our conversation. So how about that? You can have the, the podium now. That sounds lovely. So I will um, I'll do a share, I guess, of my screen and uh, make sure to just talk through it for our audience so that they don't uh, feel like it's... Um, uh, like they're missing anything. So there's there's six domains to foresight that I believe everyone should understand. Uh, there's our personal foresight or self-foresight. Then there's teams and everything to do with relationships and social intelligence, our families. Uh, that's a team level of foresight. And there's a whole bunch of psychology around both personal foresight and team foresight that I go into in my book. And then there's organizational foresight. And organizations, of course, are composed of teams. And this is where most people think of the term strategic foresight, where you might uh, look at trends or build scenarios or do prediction markets. These are the kind of things that typically operate at the level of an organization, trying to do strategic planning, for example. And that's the main bread and butter of professional foresighters is organizational foresight. Then the next level is societal foresight. And this is what we might argue about on Reddit, for example, uh, where you know, Reddit Futurology or, or some other um, online platform where we're going to, you know, how do we make our economics and politics and culture uh, better? And what's the future of, 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 uh, of those 
uh, of everything at that level. Then there's global foresight, and those are all the transnational things that we have to cooperate on uh, and figure out how to ethically compete over um, how to sustain our environment, uh, climate change, um, you know, glo uh, existential risks. That's global foresight. And finally, there's universal foresight, and that uh, I define as just the science and philosophy and systems thinking that we use to understand the universe and our relationship to it. So it's the biggest picture, if you will. And it's good to know that these six domains exist and to ask yourself, what do you like to think about the most within those? And which do you need to improve? And I think the takeaway in my book is that all six of these are important in different life contexts. So you might think only very occasionally about global or universal things, but you know what you what your model is matters. The story that you tell matters. So, so the book tries to help you see all of those um, and think about where you are and where, and to make sure you have others in your network who who like those other uh, domains uh, uh, as well. Another big theme uh, that people should understand that's in the book is uh, so-called four horizons of foresight. There's there's actually a power law of how we think about the future. Most of our future thinking is less than 24 hours and unconscious. So most of the thinking you and I do about the future, you know, the possible, probable, preferable, and preventable, that's all now to the end of day, now to the next loss of consciousness. And most of it's actually seconds to minutes ahead. And so we call all of that today's foresight, now to the end of day. And, you know, it might be 55% of your thinking, maybe a majority of your future thinking. Um, the next level is short-term foresight, and that's tomorrow to the next three months. We call that the T's. So, uh, you know, anything between now and, and the next quarter, right, if you're in a business environment. Then there's midterm foresight, and a good way to think about this is, is the election cycle. Uh, and that's the fours. That's either the next quarter, the next you know three months ahead of where you are now, uh, or the next four years if you're in an election cycle. Um, for defense, it's actually five years. They do what's called a five-year review, and of course the Soviet uh, Soviet and uh, and uh, CCP do these five-year uh, state reviews as well. And then any and that's midterm, right? Next quarter to the next four years, and then long term is anything beyond the next. Uh, election or review cycle, so decade, 100 years, whatever. And I would argue that's maybe 5% of the thinking we do. Uh, so it's maybe 55, 25, 15, 5 for today's short, mid, and long term. And it's something like that. It's a rapidly declining or power law declining uh, frequency that we look ahead. But the key takeaway for us is since most of our foresight is now to the end of day, if we get better at that, it's the fastest way to get better at the short term and the midterm. And the midterm, the short and the midterm, as we all know, that's where most of our evaluation horizons are. You know, if you're in a job, particularly if you're in a management, management position, you're not evaluated on what you did today. You're evaluated on what you did over the next week or quarter or more likely, um, you know, even longer. That's the, that's, those are the horizons that matter the most to your career and your, and your uh, life um, course. But the truth is you don't get better at those without getting better at what you do today. 
So we have a lot in the book about tools you can use, uh, tasks, task planning tools, um, um, uh, tools like getting things done for organizing your lists, prioritization tools. And there's a great book called Indistractable by Nir Eyal. Indistractable. And it's all about how you maintain focus throughout the day on what things that are most important for you to do. Sure, you're going to be putting out fires all day, but can you get two or three or four intentional things done that were high priority? And as Nir says in Indistractable, try and put those at the beginning of your day because you're going to get pulled away constantly by, you know, fears and fires, right? Things are going to take you away. But today's foresight, you can become masters at it. And a big part of my book is about that. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I'd like to mention is this three Ps, which we just discussed. And that was in Alvin Toffler's Future Shock in his book, 1970. He was one of the best-known futurists of the 20th century, Alvin and Heidi Toffler, actually. They co-wrote it together. Um, and he said, you know, there's a possible, there's a probable future, which I call developmental future, the possible future, which I call the evolutionary future. And then there's the preferable or the evo-devo future, right? A mix of those two. Um, so there's physics around the probable, as we were describing. There's physics around the possible. We didn't describe all the physics like quantum mechanics and chaos that have an irreducible uncertainty to them. And we discovered most of those in the 20th century. So there's somehow those two physics created organisms like us with preferences and intelligence. So I would argue this possible probable as the base, creating the preferable, that's what we call the foresight pyramid. And that's really kind of baked into the physics of, of, uh, of how, comp how complexity emerges in our universe. So it's a very useful, very grounded model. And if you think of, well, how does that apply in organizational settings? Well, you have people who love thinking about the probable. They have this funnel orientation to the way they think, and they look looking at the past. And so those are the forecasters, the risk managers, uh, financial folks, uh, law and security folks. Um, and then on the possible side, you have your innovators, your entrepreneurs, your ideators, your artists, your designers, the people who do, uh, handle knowledge management uh, and L&D in your organization. They're all about kind of the possible. And they think in terms of trees, like Darwin's tree of life. They see all these expanding possibilities, and they tend to be future-oriented. Then, bridging those two are the people who have to steer the organization towards preferences. Those are your leaders, your strategists, your analyzers, your, your planners. And I would say the metaphor, the visual metaphor for how they think is landscapes. They tend to be present-oriented. They have to synthesize past and future to do something, to act in the present. And so they see an adaptive landscape. And the peaks of those landscapes are the other actors who are doing well, and the valleys are all the other actors who are not. And, or the feature sets and the products they're creating that people don't want. And so they're trying to cooperate and compete across the peaks and to co-opt or um, somehow uh, take advantage of the folks that are in the valleys or the preference sets that are in the valleys. So, so I think these three ways of thinking are, are pretty fundamental and you got to make sure if you have an organization of any size, you have people who do all of these things, who, 
who like this entrepreneurial approach, this forecasting or finance approach, and then this an analysis strategy planning approach. Then the thing we have to bring in now is sentiment. And this, when I talked to you 10 years ago, this wasn't something I had researched. And now it's this pretty core piece of my book. We feel first and think second about the future. Some of us are optimists. Some of us are, are pessimists. And, when I, and we can be optimists and pessimists in good ways. You can be an explanatory pessimist where you just assume everything is bad. And that has been shown to shorten people's lives, increase stress, uh, increase heart attacks and, and uh, chronic uh, uh, inflammation in people's bodies when they do that. Or you can be a defensive pessimist. And a defensive pessimist is someone who imagines things they don't want to happen. They imagine the dystopias and then they steer away from them. Those are the stories they tell in their head. And defensive pessimists actually live 10% longer than strategic optimists. I was very surprised to find that, and that's in my book, the study. Uh, I was very surprised to find that, but it makes sense if you think about it because they don't kind of burn the candle at both ends. You know, they have better insurance and they just kind of live more within their boundaries. But you need strategic optimists too because those folks are going to set your stretch goals in your organization. They're going to make you, uh, you know, what is a mine for if, if it's to reach does not exceed our grasp you know I forget the quote but you know that's what strategic optimist is doing they're they're setting stretch goals ambitious goals for the organization pushing people to do more than they thought they could and, and to fail a little bit right and then to take those two perspectives you want to contrast them that's what realism is in the view of uh, some of the psychologists I quote in my book it's an active contrasting you're looking at a glass half full half empty, and you're flipping back and forth in your head and you're seeing both. That's what a real realist is, okay? You're using both well. And there's a book that is pretty central to my book uh, called Rethinking Positive Thinking by the psychologist Gabrielle Ottingen. And she says, you really want to start with strategic optimism and then defensive pessimism and then make a plan. So optimism, pessimism, plan. And you want to do those in a kind of a one-to-one -one ratio. And she's done all this work, all these randomized clinical trials, and they're in her book, and I, I summarize them in my book, that say if you do optimism, pessimism, plan, and you might do it in today's foresight, if you're making a plan for what you're going to get done today, what you see the top three things that are most important, and you want to get them done no matter what, your plan is going to be have 50 to 100% less prediction error and you're going to get 30 to 150% more of it done if you do this versus anything else. If you just go and make the plan and don't feel about it, you're going to get less done and you're going to be less accurate about what you get done. If you think negative first and then optimistic and then plan, you're going to get 50% less done. That's called reverse contrasting. If you wow. just, yeah, if you just Think about the positive and then think about the blocks, the things that in the past have kept you from doing that. And then you make your plan and you have at least one if-then statement in it, in your mind. Like, if this thing comes up, this is what I'm going to do. Then you get this, these amazing results. 50 to 100% less prediction error, 30 to 150% more productivity, and greater motivation to overcome obstacles. And she's tested this with students and 
uh, lay audiences for all kinds of things like reading, uh, t doing uh, tests, uh, changing behavior, you know, uh, losing weight, eating more fruits and vegetables. She's got all these great studies in there. So we've taken that model and we've updated SWOT, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, into something we call ADOR analysis. And what we argue is if you want to do a quick analysis in an organization or a team, think first of all the advantages external to you that are relative. ADOR stands for Advantage, Disruption, Opportunity, Risk. Those are the four things you want to think about in that order to use this sentiment contrasting that she's talking about. So first you look and say, what are all the advantages happening in the world that are relevant to my problem that are not happening to me? That's how we define an advantage. It's some advance, some new tool, some new capability that you're not getting right now. Then once you've done that scan, you scan for disruption. And disruption is something that is a forced change to somebody that they don't want. And it's also an opportunity for others, right? COVID was a terrible disruption, but it was an opportunity for Zoom and you know uh, all of these, uh, you know, uh, Amazon and all these uh, various actors, uh, makers of, of uh, vaccines, uh, you know, biosecurity, etc. And after you've done those two scans, advantage and disruption that are relevant to your plan, then you do an internal scan. What is my opportunity relative to the, my goal? And what is my risk? And the risk should be risk of action and risk of inaction. Because very often you can retreat into safetyism and you can decide, oh, it's safest just not to act. But then you lose the opportunity, right? So you have to evaluate positive and negative risk. And so that's ADOR. And we recommend a lot of people do it uh, before they make plans. You can do it in 10 minutes and it's in my book. And then I also describe what's called DROA bias or negativity bias. And what's rampant in our media and some organizations and teams and some people is we, we, we tend to think first about the negative and then the positive. So first we look to disruption and risk in the world. And then lastly, we, we think of some personal opportunity. And then finally, most weekly, do we scan for advantage? Because that makes us kind of jealous to see all the advantages everyone else is getting. And of course, the media doesn't want to report that. They don't want to make people viewing it envious, so they don't describe all the good things happening. They just start with, you know, the car crashes, because that's what keeps our eyeballs. And so, as Ottingen has shown, that approach degrades, it takes away half of our foresight capacity. It's like, it's like cutting off half of what you can see. And there's a book I recommend called The Power of Bad by uh, Turney and Baumeister. came out last year. And the subtitle is How the Negativity Effect, Negativity Bias, How It Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. How you can kind of rise above it and say, no, I'm not going to consume that network news because it's mostly all bad. Instead, I'm going to consume news that's balanced. And maybe I'm going to consume it a few days late so I don't get caught in the drama of the daily stuff. And there's all these useful tools in that book that I recommend people, uh, people use. So the modern foresight pyramid is now the probable, the possible, and we split the preferable into the preferable or the preferred and the preventable. 
right? And the strategic optimists are all about the preferable and the defensive pessimists are all about the preventable. And this modern model was first described by my colleague Art Shostak um, um, a few years ago. And so you say, well, who are the groups in an organization who like to do these, argue about these four ways of looking at the future? Well, we can call the people, the probable folks, those are the anticipators. We can call the future-oriented folks, the possible future-oriented uh, folks, the innovators. And then we have the optimists and the pessimists. And so if you want to make strategy, you, you, you really have two conflicts that you have to think about. Are you anticipating the future? Are you innovating or imagining the future? And then once you've had the, that, you've hashed out that conflict a little bit and you know what you can predict and what you can't, then you have the optimism pessimism argument in your group or in your own head, and then you make your plan. And so that's kind of the new model. And um, there is a beautiful temperament diagnostic called the Kiersey. It's a it's the Myers-Briggs, it's a version of the Myers-Briggs personality type, uh, personality inventory, um, MBTI, temperament inventory, uh, or type inventory. And it summarizes uh, human temperament into actually four types, not just the 16 of Myers-Briggs. It has the subtypes of Myers-Briggs in it, but the four types in the Kiersey uh, diagnostic and you can take this, by the way, on uh, Kiersey.com as a set free 70 question test that'll tell you what the four type, which type you are of the four types. The four types are po probable, possible, preventable, and preferable thinkers. They use different terms, though. They call the probable thinker the guardian. And the guardian is a person who's thinking about what's right and the status quo and what's expected. And then a possible thinker is an artisan. And they love creation and beauty and possibility and whatever works. They're just, they just love getting in and making stuff. And those folks are fighting each other a lot in many organizations, the guardian and the artisan uh, temperament. And then at the top in the strategy, once you've had that fight, there's a different fight. There's a fight over what should be and what needs fixing. And the what should be folks, Kiersey calls the idealist. And then the people who are thinking about what needs fixing are the rationalists. And so you've got the idealists and the rationalists fighting each other and the guardians and the artisans. And as Kiersey says, we are all actually all four of those types in different contexts. And so the reality is you should realize, you know, everybody has their preferences and they're all important and they're all valuable. And so that's kind of the summary. And I'm giving one last summary slide. The way that I think you should think about foresight is this is this ADOR perspective, right? Advantages, uh, disruptions, opportunities, and risks. Um, or alternatively, the four Ps. First, you assess the environment. You do it with predictive contrasting. You say, what is likely to happen? That's your probable or expected future. And then what could happen? And that's your possible or uncertain future. And you have that conversation for yourself and with your teams. And then you try and create some strategy after you've, or, and, and plans after you've assessed your, the relevant environment. And for strategy, you want to have in your head 
sentiment balancing. You want to say first, what do I want? And try and visualize it. And then, what do I want to prevent? And you get a little defensively pessimistic. And then you have that little fight and then you make a plan with an if-then statement. And that's foresight, my friend. That is the kind of central idea of this book. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. So that's my overview for you, sir. Wow, John, that was absolutely fantastic, my friend. I really enjoyed it, especially the, the concluding slide there, which kind of prevent, uh, preempted, I should say, my, my question about how do average people take this uh, kind of concept or, or, or foresight and apply it in their life? But I think if they take those four questions, that slide and go step by step, just as you recommended. I think that's, that's a great tool that we should use probably every day, if not multiple times per day, whether in our personal lives, whether in our professional lives, whether with our, uh, let's say, investment or retirement funds in mind, uh, whether with, uh, you know, with respect to the future of our children, like in any way possible, I think it's a very, very, very useful model. Great job there. Yeah, Thank you, sure. sir. It's an honor to be able to discuss this with you and also to realize that, uh, you know, there's all this great wisdom out there. The more we, the, we're learning all this stuff. Um, you know, Ottingen didn't publish her book on sentiment contrasting until the year after our last, con our last uh, conversation. So, so the whole field of the psychology of foresight, we're learning more and more about it, about how to do it well. And, you know, being in touch with your feelings is so important and keeping them in balance and not getting too optimistic or pessimistic uh, is so helpful to, you know, really to your life success. Okay, so let me ask you this then, because I think we have maybe about 30 minutes or so, give or take. So let me ask you this. What is the biggest misconception about foresight? Something that kind of you have to struggle with, you know, that people misperceive about it and that you want to settle once and for all, perhaps. Oh, biggest misconception. I'd say the biggest misconception is that there isn't much of a probable future. I call that um, anti-prediction bias or freedom bias in the book. So we talked about negativity bias, how it's easy for us to go negative first, even though it, re refer it reduces our capacity by 50% of really seeing what, what matters. Um, we can also in the conflict, the prediction, the predictive contrasting between the, the probable and the possible, we can also devalue the probable. We tend to think, oh no, in the realm that matters to me, there isn't much that's predictable. But there actually is. If you look at previous analogies, if you look at history, and you get a cognitively diverse group to criticize those models, you can very often find something that's worth betting on. Now, it's a probabilistic bet, right? Usually it's not so high that you would call it inevitable, but often it's very, very high probability. And so you can see that and that becomes the constraint. And I would argue that there's actually people in the foresight profession who say prediction is not good practice. They actually say that and they published in some journals and futures and foresight saying that. And I've gone out of my way in my book to try and debunk that. 
and say, no, prediction is very good practice. And by the way, you're going to suck at it at first. <laughs> if you don't practice it, you won't be good at it. But if you keep practicing it and you qualify it and you use the right language, uh, for, for example, um, when Kennedy, JFK, was being advised on going into the Bay, Bay of Pigs, he was given the advice that there was a fair chance of the operation's success. Fair in the analyst's mind was 30%. This is one of those famous examples. Yeah. And there was the there was the paper, but you know JFK wasn't reading the paper; he was listening to language. But because the language didn't include specific probability, he said okay. And we know JFK's personality enough to know that if he had heard it was thirty percent, he would have done exactly what he did in every other situation. He would have assigned a study group to. Uh, you know, give him more data because he wouldn't have acted. He would have collect. He waited and collected data. That's what he did with everything, and so that wouldn't have happened. You know, it, it, that's an alternative history. That uh, you know, it's reasonable to suspect that it wouldn't have happened because, again, that analyst was not treating probable with the with the um, with the seriousness that it deserved. We can. We can assign rough probabilities to all kinds of things. And as uh, prediction markets have shown, particularly uh, Phil Tetlock's book, Super Forecasting. Have you had Phil on your... I haven't had Phil on, but I'm looking at his book uh, right here on my shelf as you're giving that example, because he talks about it very well. And I actually wanted to bring that because it's, it's a brilliant book, but he made headlines around the world with that book in saying that experts, especially futurists and foresighters, so-called experts or pundits, have about worst chance of guessing the future or predicting the future than a chimp throwing darts. Yeah, so that all depends on the domain, of course. And it's very easy for them to get into uh, places where they're worse than, uh, than the network. But of course, a network of experts whose cognitive biases are being um, co consciously discussed, I would argue, is going to be better than a network of amateurs, even. But that he, Phil Phil hasn't done that study. He just did the study of you know the CIA experts against the average super predictors in his network, who were lay, but they beat. They kept beating because the network beats uh, the wisdom of crowds, as James Surowiecki said in. Uh, you know, almost 20 years ago, right? Um, a cognitively diverse group guessing the jelly beans in the jar, uh, they, they're they Or the weight of the, the horse, horse, or was it the cow? Yes, that was Galton. Yeah, Francis Galton. They get much more accurate, and their standard deviation of error goes down. So their, their, their average gets better, and the error bars go in. And that's really the power of a cognitively diverse network. So networks always win, and... Uh, we, but have again, to treat, we, have, we have to treat that seriously, though. We have to believe that we can actually do that. And that requires a leap of faith. And freedom bias is the alternative name for anti-prediction bias. Many in our transhumanist community love to believe the future is far less constrained than it actually is. 
because there's a deep desire, particularly the libertarians uh, have this. They have this strong belief that they can kind of create any kind of future they want. Uh, you know, you hear these, you, you get these, you get these hubristic statements like Alan Kay, the future, even Abraham Lincoln apparently said this, the future is not, you know, is not predicted, it's created. But it's both, right? The, the Evo Devo um, triad tells us that it's actually both. And then actually the prediction and the creation are actually less important than the preferable and preventable visions. Because the creation, as we all know, most of that is just fun. Most of that is just experimental fun. Doesn't necessarily create anything of value, but it's the selected subset of the created, right? That becomes the, the new preferable. And of course, some of that is the preventable as well. And that's actually my favorite quote from your paper on exponential progress, thriving in an era of accelerating change, because on page 517, you say, quote, we must learn to see how physics, chemistry, biology, human culture, and technology are each catalysts for new evolutionary freedoms and new developmental constraints at the same time. We must also guard against both overly free and overly determined models of the future. It is easy to get out of this evo-devo balance and oversimplify reality. And I think all the mistakes we're seeing is people who went one direction or the other and oversimplified reality. And that's the best quote I've ever seen on, on that mistake and on the importance of keeping that balance right. It's the best quote I've ever seen. My friend, I, um, I'm honored that uh, you plucked that out of my 26-page paper. That paper, by the way, is a summary of the book. So if you're saying, I don't want to read a 280-page book, well, read the 26-page paper. Uh, you know, that'll be in the show notes, hopefully. Um, if it's public, I'll link to it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll send it to you. So I'll send you a link. So uh, yeah, that's the hard thing to do, isn't it? But let's go back to one of the greatest uh, conceptual advances of the 20th century, quantum mechanics, right? Heisenberg and Schrodinger and all those great guys and gals figured out that if you precisely predict, precisely I'm going to use the word deterministically, uh, determine the value of position, then momentum becomes uncertain and vice versa. You absolutely, it's in the ba basic structure of the universe that we have stochastic statistical uncertainty and deterministic predictability. And you try and push one too far and the other one goes the other way. And so this possible and probable, they're actually built in to the basic physics. The universe is not deterministic. It's partially deterministic. How awesome is that? The universe is not logical. It's partially logical. So the Evo Devo triad, maybe the coolest thing I'm going to say for all of the folks here who love logic and, and philosophy is that Evo Devo triad where you've got possible and probable at the bottom and preferable emerging, right? Life emerging from the physics of the predictable and the unpredictable, is logic works the same way. You've got mostly inference, 
a little bit of deduction, and then at the top you've got abduction, right? Where you generalize from and, and create a probabilistic model, right? Or you or you analogize. Those are both kinds of fundamental kinds of abduction, right? So we've got a lot of folks in our rationalist community, particularly on the kind of ethical altruism side and, and some of the transhumanists who love logic. That's only one piece of the bottom. The other is inference. You have to constantly infer. It was only through the advance of the understanding of inference that really the scientific method and the enlightenment kind of emerged. It wasn't just deduction, it was induction. And so you so so you 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 take these particulars and then you induce this this general rule, but you're actually abducing. So abduction is at the top. And so you really you really you can't be a deduct just a deductive thinker and you can't be just a rational designer of these AIs that are coming, yeah, we're going to try and rationally design them, but we're only going to partially understand their brains, just like the ones that DeepMind is creating today. The only way we're really going to understand them is testing them in this selection environment on proven past safe behavior. Just the same way that we have domesticated ourselves and domesticated all of our animals. We, we can't, it's never going to be fully transparent to the deductive way of thinking and the probabilistic or deterministic way of looking at the world. The universe will never be that way. It's going to be partly that way, it's going to be partly, and it's going to be very largely inductive. And, and, uh, and then at the top, we have abduction. And as we were just describing, we feel our way, mostly. We feel our way towards those better things. That's, that's the amazing feature of this brain is when we're doing an emotional, uh, you know, um, optimist or, or optimistic or pessimistic sentiment, we're actually doing a state summary of massive numbers of these, uh, you know. People call it following their gut. Yeah, these unconscious uh, computations that we've done. So I, I think we're going to come to some of our, in our transhumanist community, really, they, they don't like the flesh. You know, they, oh, get out of the flesh. I want to get into this better thing. Well, yes and no. Maybe you will get into a better thing, but you're going to be, taking so much of this thing with you that you're staying human. That's why I, I do not like the word post-human at all. We're just going to become more human. Nietzsche said that there's, so, there's much more wisdom in your body than in the best of philosophies. Love it. I love it. Thank you for that quote. Yes. So we're going to become more human. And the and Nietzsche's uber mensch or whatever is really just more more of what we are, what we actually are, head, hand, and heart. So uh, let me bring in another concept here, though, and we touched a bit on, on it, but, but I want us to go a little deeper. Uh, and that's the concept of accelerating change, because you see, we have Peter Thiel again, whom you've mentioned already, but he famously wrote that, you know, we were promised flying cars and jetpacks, and all we got was 140 characters. And there's been many other examples given by him and others about, you know, we used to have the Concorde uh, with, you know, supersonic speed over uh, commercial flights. Now we lost that. We used to be able to go to the moon. We lost that. Uh, so is there really accelerating change? Because if you follow those arguments, Peter Thiel would su supposedly say, no, not really. It's been slowing down. It hasn't been accelerating. 
But then if you listen to others like Ray Kurzweil, they would say definitely it's been accelerating. So how do you see that with your kind of modeling and, and foresight skills? Well, I guess now we're getting to this question of what is accelerating change. And we talked about it in our first interview. Um, and I've had some uh, advances in the way that I think about it and write about it since. Um, I could throw some slides up or I could just discuss it. What would you prefer? Uh, let's discuss it. And perhaps we should take the most famous example of that, which I should have mentioned in my question from a second ago, Moore's Law. I've met a lot of people who, you know, Moore's Law is kind of, quote, the epitome of accelerating change. And yet I've, I met a, a professor at the University of Toronto five years ago who's expert in chip design, and he was telling me Moore's Law is dead. Yeah, so let's go into that. You know, it, he's right and wrong. So the specific Moore's Law of MOSFET miniaturization is dead. But a generalized Moore's law of computational complexity is alive and kicking. And so how is that how is that possible? Well, what happened was, you know, starting in 2005 with the breakdown of something called Dennard scaling, uh, chips got the circuits got so small that um, electron leak at the gates and heat became huge problems with design. And so they, uh, if you look at the actual Moore's Law curve and all the Kurzweil curve, it flattened out. So what happened? Well, right around, right around that time, uh, people started going to multi-core chips, thinking that might be a solution. But those have difficulty with programming. So they also... And heat and energy consumption. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so then people started looking sideways at these GPUs which were then scaling um, without that Moore's law constraint um, because they're much more massively parallel by design because of the, of the math that they do. And then people started saying, well, can we apply, what can we use these things for? And that was when in 2010 they discovered, well, well we knew these things are great for neural nets and we got lots of data now. Let's just throw, the, let's just throw that on these GPUs and see what they can do. And then, of course, that led us to the TPUs, that uh, you know Google's making, and and then to this um, kind of neuro, this neuromorphic set of paradigms that uh, uh, you know, like like Intel's Lohi chip and such, that people think are also going to continue to scale. So what? How do you measure that? You got to measure it with something different than this shrinking paradigm. And so what is it? It's kind of a circuit complexity. There's kind of a neural network circuit complexity in a neural net, whether it's on hardware on one of these Lohi chips or whether it's in software, you know, um, in emulation on one of these GPU chips. So how do you measure that? You gotta measure, you gotta use different metrics. But the truth is some of the metrics people were using is the number of parameters that are used to train the system. And then Kurzweil has these stunning, you know, quotes that, you know, the parameters are just blowing up at a super exponential rate relative to Moore's law. I'm not sure that's the right thing to measure. That could just be cherry picking something that's cool that kind of makes you super excited. But the reality is there's definitely exponentiation, super exponentiation going on. My friend Bella Naj, uh, uh, the transhumanist, I don't know if you knew him. Uh, no. Yeah, he, 
he um, somewhere close to Bulgaria. He, he was from originally, and he, sounds Hungarian. Sounds sounds Hungarian. It could me. be Hungarian. Yeah. So uh, he's a really interesting transhumanist, and he tried to get the performance curve database off the ground at the Santa Fe Institute, and NIH wouldn't fund it because. I think because they were just scared of the Kurzweil implications that these things are, you know, he's saying these things are inevitable, that you see these performance curve advances, not just in Moore's law, but you see them in, you know, genomic sequencing, you see them in, uh, in uh, solar PV, you see them in um, uh, so many fundamental areas of material science and, um, and catalytic chemistry. Um, and so what are they? Well, they're inner space. And, and this is pretty central to my second book. There's two things. There's de there's densification and dematerialization. And the easy way to understand that is there's, there's two things happening that humans apply intelligence at small scales. First, we figure out how to densify and there's two ways you should think about that. Now, densification is with regard to tangible things, the tangible world, okay? So we either get people together closer in physical space, we localize, or we miniaturize. We figure out how to take something that happened on the meso or human scale and take it down to the, uh, to, uh, to the machine scale, uh, micro-machine scale, or we take it to nano, from, from you know, um, uh, large scale to nanotechnological scale, like if we, if we sent, if we, for example, rather than grow a plant to create nitrogen fertilizer, we'd invent the Haber-Bosch process and we just grab it out of the air, right? And now we're going back to modifying the plants using uh, uh, um, synthetic biology and, gen and, and genetic engineering, right? So you're going into inner space two ways, localizing or or miniaturizing, and that's densification. And that, the universe seems to allow us to do that all the way down to the Planck scale, okay? We're making quantum computers, right? Incredible quantum computers that actually have quantum supremacy in a few algorithms already. Us, these, you know, fat-fingered early 20th century humans, how are we doing this? Because the universe is actually allowing the densification uh, the localization and the miniaturization as this process of accelerating densification, okay? The second thing that we do that generates accelerating change is dematerialization. And this is the world of the intangible. What we do with our minds is we replace information with physical things, informa informationalization, or we replace computation with physical processes, the way the smartphone replaced, you know, probably 40 different things when it emerged, right? And that's dematerialization. And then we ship, and that's the intangible world. So now the intangible value of all of these tech companies is far exceeding their tangible value because they're platform com companies, because they're software companies, because they're digitization companies. And so wherever you can swap information for atoms, right, bits for atoms, or computation for a physical process or product, you're dematerializing. And that's D&D. &D. If you played D&D &D in high school, as I did, you, you got a nice simple summary for why accelerating change is going to continue for the rest of our lives, because it's actually built in to the way intelligence emerges, like the way complexity emerges on all Earth-like planets. 
I would argue this is happening on all Earth-like planets. And the interesting thing is, well, why don't they all go out to see each other? Well, I just described the densification. is a, It's a kind of a localization, and it's a diving inward. We actually discovered in the 2000s that the kind of the ultimate version of that is a black hole. Uh, Seth Lloyd published a paper in uh, 1999 basically arguing that the black hole is kind of like the ultimate laptop. If you Google the ultimate laptop, you'll find that paper. It's, that, it's like anything that gets further and further inward has this incredible computational capability. So I, I published a paper you know, in 2011, uh, shortly after our interview, called the Transcension Hypothesis, which argues that uh, we go to inner space. That's how all the intelligences kind of meet up and compare and contrast all the unique things they don't know is it yet, right? Because we're all finite. None of us are ever going to be godlike, right? Or our descendants, if we're finite physical things. Well, the universe seems to be self-organized, if you will, if it's also a replicator, which we, you know, argue in our Evo Devil Universe community, it might be. If our universe is a replicator, well, it's a very good system for keeping all the interesting things very highly separated from each other, and they're all diving into this inner space, and if we're lucky, they're all going to kind of meet each other through some kind of hyperspatial or wormhole or metaversal kind of, who knows what the physics are yet. But the interesting thing about black holes is there's trillions of them in our, in our universe and they're kind of partly inside and partly outside our, our universe. So the topology of where the future of intelligence goes is a highly open question right now. And the one thing that I think is worth really thinking about from the big picture of accelerating change is, well, how does D, where does D&D take us next? Because it really does look like we're just going to keep creating more of this interiority, if you will, and this densification, if you will. And uh, I really think these are incredible, incredible um, processes to, to think about and say, well, what is the future of the Internet? What is the future of, you know, uh, self-driving cars and these networks, these you know, uh, air taxi networks that are going to shuttle us all around, you know, and, and whatever, whatever things we can imagine in our future space. Well, is that kind of baked into how the system works? Is that generally predictable? You know, is that generally statistically inevitable if we survive? That's, of course, the big if, right? And then, and then the other thing that I would say is how do, how do well-built networks protect that acceleration. How has that happened in the past? The better we can understand that in biological systems, the better we can understand it in social systems, the better we can understand it in technological systems, I would argue. So, so that is my, my bias, is that there's something to the actual structure. See, a priori, Nicola, you would not expect accelerating change to continue on Earth. What you would expect if you're thinking from an evolutionary perspective is, at least in my, in my view, in my model, you would expect a, a radiation of all kinds of different systems, just taking all the local resources. And a few of those would be better than others, but you wouldn't expect the thing to accelerate. You'd expect this kind of local resource consumption, and then they'd kind of flatline, or they'd at least go, some kind of equilibrium would emerge. But instead, what has happened is we've seen this kind of J curve it's almost like the universe is balancing on a tip of a pencil and it's not, you know, 
Like, why is why is acceleration happening? This was the original insight that made me want to start this Acceleration Studies Foundation in 2003 is, well, there's something protecting this acceleration. And I think this D&D is part of it, but it's only part of it. There's an ethics and an empathy. Those are the two big words that are in my book. I actually describe them several times. There's an ethics and an empathy, back to our sentiment, right? Feeling that is built into well-built networks and we're going to discover more how to advance those because ethics and empathy have become in human society kind of the top things that you know our new generation is talking about we we want we want and and they're baked into us as my my when my kid was 2 years old she was talking about fairness right and she was talking about love wow fairness and love like there it is ethics and empathy is that fair is that not fair you know, is daddy happy? Is he daddy mad? You know, it's like we seem to be baked, baked in. We can, we're, we're super cooperators, right? So I would say that there's some wonderful things we're going to learn from um, evolution and development, from biological sciences, from, uh, you know, um, deep, uh, inspir- deep, deep understanding of nature and of, and of universal complexity that will help us in this, uh, you know, chart this really really um you know amazing uh path that's ahead of us with the promise and peril as kurzweil would say so that was kind of on the transcension hypothesis that um i would also try to link from um uh, my interview page now john let me ask you this um can i keep you for another 20 minutes or so give or take yes sir fantastic because i want to kind of put you on the spot here a little bit. I mean, you're a professional foresighter. So we have to put you on the spot. How do you, John, define AI? And what is your predicted timeline for us to build one? Well, I I, I guess... um... I guess I don't have a good definition. You kind of call me out on... um... On, um... The reason why I start with the definition is because, you know, I've, I've done now almost 300 interviews and probably 200 of them may have been on AI. And I'm shocked that I've never met or I've never done two interviews where the interviewees had the same definition. Yeah. Well, mine would go immediately to evolution and development. So I would define, uh, first I had to define intelligence. And I would argue that artificial intelligence is just a kind of a crude model of natural intelligence. And so what is natural intelligence? Well, intelligence, I would argue, is entrained in any replicator. And so to give you another 200 odd, you know, 230th odd uh, definition of, of intelligence, I would say that complexity, interesting complexity, adapted complexity, is intrinsic to any replicator that has both evolutionary and developmental features. So the reason something has intelligence is because it has previously, is because it's followed a developmental cycle and it has evolutionary capabilities. So any interesting replicator, whether it be a sun replicating in an early universe to create increasingly complex uh, cores and and, uh, to build out the periodic table, and then all the complex planets that can emerge on top of that. 
That's a very fundamental replicator in the early universe. Whether it be chemical replicators chasing each other's tails prior to creation of the first cell, so-called autocatalytic networks. Whether it be a cell, uh, whether it be multicellular system, whether it be um, ideas in brains replicating, jumping from my brain to yours. Uh, whether it be institutions, physical things we're replicating in the world, like new copies, new new versions of our of our phones, uh, any replicator in an adaptive environment is going to have these creative evolutionary features, these capabilities of experiment and creation and creation of variety. Then it's going to have these developmental features that take the chaos out of the system and keep it on the replicative cycle, and that system is going to be under selection. And to my way of thinking, intelligence emerges as a way of coordinating evolutionary and developmental dynamics. And the physicist way of describing evolutionary and developmental dynamics is pretty precise. Evolutionary dynamics create new information. Developmental dynamics conserve old information. Evolutionary dynamics are intrinsically unpredictable the further forward you look. Developmental dynamics are statistically predictable with relation to the previous cycle. That's the key. Only in relation to the cycle does the predictability of development exist. And so you see these hierarchies happening. And so that's where I would argue the intrinsic predictability of the universe itself comes. is because it's replicated many times before. And maybe as Smolin says, black holes are part of that replication cycle uh, to create new universes in the multiverse. Uh, or maybe it's some other dynamic, but the fundamental dynamic, in my opinion, is what's called autopoiesis, which means self-reproduction and self-maintenance. That's the term, autopoietics. It was a big term in the systems theory community back in the 80s and uh, 70s for a little while. Didn't get much traction after that, kind of like cybernetics had its little period and then it dropped away, right? Uh, which is the theory of control, right? Control systems, Norbert Wiener and all those folks, Robert Rosh Ashby. Uh, so I would say autopoetics is kind of at the center of all intelligence. You have to have an autopoetic system. As soon as you've got one, you've got intelligence. If I take a virus and I cut it up in a Petri dish, guess what happens to those molecules? They self-assemble again. And you look at that and you say, whoa, that's self-organization. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. There's some intrinsic intelligence there. Adapted intelligence. Yeah, but only because it has cycled so many times in the past that those particular shape charge interactions of those of those molecules, they're just waiting for that potentiality. And then you can blow them up and they come back together. I can take a developing embryo and I can move around the eyes and the mouth and things. And I can smoosh up its face or I can create a chimera with new pieces. And you know what that embryo will do? It'll fix itself. That's how smart those little developmental cells are because they've cycled so many previous times. That's how much intelligence is in that system. And the, the bill of goods I'm selling you is that there's no, other, there's no other pathway through to create general intelligence, is that we're going to figure out how to take that general model and we're going to reinstantiate it in this new substrate. And if we do, you know, it'll have ethics and empathy like us. It'll have all many of the processes we do. It'll, Wisdom will continue. Predictability will continue. There's a lot you can say about the future of that thing that's, that you can say about humans in, in that model. Yeah, and, and you remind me, 
greatly of, a, of another interview that I've interviewed here before, uh, Danko Nikolic, uh, from the Max Planck Institute, and he calls this process that you just described practopoiesis, because, yeah, because it's the next step of, of what we need to have that kind of autopoiesis for AI, as as you've described. Anyway, but okay, so so what's the timeline then that you foresee that we can... Great question. So when I started doing this work, you know, and started writing my, my uh, Singularity Watch website in 1999, and it became Acceleration Watch because I thought it was a better term, um, I believed it might, it might happen in uh, 2040. And then as I look closer at it, I don't know, within like five or six years, probably by 26, 2006, 7, I was thinking 2060. There's no way it's going to happen that soon. And, and, the, and the two things that made me think that was that you had to have more of these EvoDevil features built into the system before that GAI would emerge. And we have very little of that today currently. And then second was social pushback. As, as, the, as the AI started to get creepy, I expected that globally, I'm talking everyone now, China, everybody, we would start regulating it more and slowing it down for at least a decade or two just to put more safety and testing into it because particularly around the combat AI, because, you know, those things can be super powerful and aggressive, but, you know, we're going to have to very carefully, carefully test those those unmanned combat, you know, systems for loyalty and dependability and, you know, to some degree explainability, but explainability is a bit of a mirage when you have this AI trying to say, oh, this is my model. Well, that's really not your model. Your model is actually the whole network and nobody really knows where that algorithm is. So I would think those are the two things that will slow it down. And today, I would argue that it's probably a little past 2060. I would say it might be 2070, 2080, if you were to pin me down, because it's so easy for us to get over-optimistic about these and to under-appreciate the complexity and the social pushback, which I actually welcome that. I welcome a little bit of social pushback, because from the biggest perspective, I think you have this crazy accelerating force that can easily be misused early on the way our tech titans are kind of misusing these early versions of AI that haven't democratized yet. A big part of my um, second book, and I, I tease it in the first book, is the personal AI. What happens in a world where you and I have things that actually we think of as extensions of us that understand us as well, understand us as well as we do in a, in a story sense and in a, in, a, in, a, in a values and goals sense. When the AI gets that good, you can re-democratize. You can do social activism. You can do amazing things, but I think that's a good ways away. For right now, AI is mostly the tool of the powerful actors and the tech titans and the, you know at the top. And it's going to take a while before it becomes a network thing, the way I was describing how networks always win. Right now, it's just this kind of pyramidal thing that's really limited in what it can do. So those would be my two reasons why it's longer than maybe Kurzweil and a lot of those folks think. And, you know, if you were to pin me down, I would act, I'd actually say it's probably 20 years again further than I was currently thinking. Because you look at it more deeply and you can see ways people want to slow it down. 
Although I can see the other side. I can see the people, you know, who are doing the GPT-3 and everyone, and they're all just, man, they're, they're publishing lots of papers right now. They are definitely exciting themselves that this thing is coming tomorrow. You know, some of those folks probably think like, uh, you know, like Werner Vinge did, 2035, right? Or, or even earlier. Actually, Werner Vinge said in 1992, within 30 years, the human era would have ended. Well, the 30 years are over. We're 2022 today. When I interviewed him personally about that paper, he said 2030, 2035. But yes, that's what he said in the actual paper. Good point. Yeah. And and, and another thing is uh, Demis Hassabis, you know, when, uh, uh, when his AI breakthroughs happened, you know, around 2011, I think it was about a decade ago, uh, he was very, very optimistic. Uh, and then I was reading a report uh, probably about two years ago, so 2019, 2020, uh, or an interview with him where he literally admits that the original optimism that he felt, uh, you know, after uh, defeating the world, uh, uh, the world Go champion and, and so on and so on, that AI would literally continue accelerating and create the comp amazing things very quickly after that has not quite panned out at the same pace that he was originally expecting. Good to hear. Good to hear. Well, he's a young man and young, you know, young men and women are entitled to their optimism. But back to our point about the sentiment contrasting, if they're not developing enough defensive pessimism in either themselves or their community, they're going to get caught out. I have on my shelf behind me, I have scads of books of people who predicted all kinds of crazy, wonderful flying car futures that um, didn't happen as fast as they expected them to. And part of it was technical, technical challenge and part of it was social values change and, um, and regulation, increasing regulation as, as our friend, uh, Peter Thiel, you know, the libertarian, um, and I'm not libertarian, let me just make that disclaimer, but as he, he likes to say that most forms of engineering became illegal after the 70s, right, except for in computing. And to me, that's hallelujah. I'm glad we're not doing this crazy experimentation on the bio side. Um, in fact, I think we need a whole lot more biosurveillance and bio and um, and in, in um, immunology uh, research and adjuvant viral adjuvant research because what can be done in molecular virology is scary as hell and so I think you need to slow down and regulate a whole bunch of kinds of experimentation and to, to accelerate others um, famous case in point there's a lot of people today who'd loved who, who think we need nuclear power we need nuclear power to prevent climate change you know, oh man, what a mistake, you know, canceling nuclear power, etc. I think they're all wrong. They're all very wrong. Because the truth is, that's a genie we put back in the bottle. We put it in the bottle in the uh, starting with nuclear weapons in the uh, beginning in the in the 60s with uh, salt talks, right, and, and, and non-proliferation. And then we put nuclear power in the bottle starting after Three Mile Island and Tokaimura and Chernobyl. And that's great because the truth is 
that is one of the other really bad things that people can misuse. People do not realize how many ways there are to purify uranium and create bombs or seed it to create plutonium and create bombs. People do not realize how many ways. In the 1940s, there was probably six different ways that existed, that we were, we were exploring them all in the creation of the atomic bomb. Let me recommend the book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, one of the coolest books I've ever read. Um, it's, I have a reading group that's reading it right now. And it's so scary what, what can be done. And we, we did this massive unlearning of all of that chemistry. There's so few people that know how to do that. There's only enough people to know how to you know, run the nuke uh, reactors on the subs and, and a few of these. You know, now now uh, nuclear power has gone from 17% to 10% of the total mix. Hallelujah, man. Because we should be pushing all the other ones because that one has too much of a weaponization potential. I do not want to have cities being ransomed or disappeared by because of some fanatical group that figures out how to uh, to make these things because that's such a powerful technology. So what's my alternative? My alternative is you slow down the technologies that have these serious negative externalities, even though it has the positive one for climate change. You slow them down enough for this network to exist, this AI network that you and I think is going to exist sometime later this century, so that when the kid in their basement in the 2080s wants to make one of these things, and they will be able to, they won't make it because the transparency will be there, the oversight will be there, and they'll get the extra help or attention that they need to steer them away from that Columbine-type fanaticism thinking because the network uh, exists, because you and I have an immune system in us, in us that protects against bad actors. That kind of network does not exist for the planet. It will eventually exist in some post-singularity future. So I think you know the, the assumptions we make around these things, they're important. And uh, recognizing being, being a defensive pessimist and recognizing the downsides. Many people have written books on existential risks. I only see two. That's w, uh, you know, weaponized bioweapons and nuclear proliferation. I only see two major, major risks for humanity in this, in this next, let's say, three, four decades. Many people see many others. I only see one myself, but the, the, the classic response to your criticism, though, is that um, the same could be said about any technology. No, it couldn't. It couldn't. You Almost. want to read that book. You want to read that book, okay? It's a beautiful book. You can't... Inner space is so incredibly powerful. Nicola, uh, I think it's three or... It's, it's, I think it's three or four orders of magnitude more power that you get from taking this one atom, uranium, that is in this particular place where it's unstable enough to be easily cracked, and purifying that, right? And you release t t uh, three to four orders of magnitude more power per weight than chemical explosives. And you know what, buddy? That's just the start. You can release four orders of magnitude more than that. Yeah, with the hydrogen. With a thermonuclear bomb. Yeah. Well, you just use that to seed the next thing. And you know what's sad? It took the, it took the uh, Soviets just, what, five years to copy what we did once proof of concept was there? I am Part so incredibly happy 
that this has not proliferated everywhere, that, that humanity has done this massive turning away from all of that technology because guess what? Nature does have a few things that are scary enough that we should do that. And those two things are both in that class, in my opinion. It's because of the inner space capabilities. It's because that, again, four orders of magnitude, four orders of magnitude, very few things in nature have that capability. And likewise with the, with the replicating virus. That's, a, that's another exponential that very few things have that capability in our world. And I, and I, think, it's, I think it's incumbent upon us to recognize those things as separate, treat them as separate, and then improve all the other things that really do matter. But I don't see them as separate, you see. I see them as the same thing emerging in different realms, which is to say our technological power far outpacing our wisdom to control and utilize it in a wise and non-suicidal manner. Okay, now I, I'm going to agree entirely with the wise, but not the suicidal. I think if you look at the existential risks that actually exist, here's the weirdest thing I'm going to say to you. If our universe has emerged, is autopoetic, if it's gone, if it is really trying to maximize intelligence and complexity, don't you think it might be a childproof universe to some degree? Or it might take most of the dangerous stuff away, like put the childproof cap on the, on the dangerous stuff? And if you look carefully at the way the universal dynamics uh, uh, um, works, there are very few things that are suicidal for the acceleration of complexity. Very few things. What we've seen and said is this Gaia type of a, of a, of a uh, Earth and of, of a civilization where it's well, amazing well. How, how few things actually can kill the whole system. It really is but amazing. But it depends what's the whole system, right? Because if the whole system is the universe, then our civilization may snuff out any time and the universe would have a backup somewhere there on another point. Good point. Planet. And you could be exactly right. That, that could, but that could happen. But we may be the ones who are like the, the suicidal in this case. And yes, the universe can have a plan B somewhere else or plan the whole alphabet of backups. I, I love it. You, you, you're really getting to that key issue. And it really has to do with how childproof actually is it, right? And I would say it's more childproof than we expect. Like I would think that that in all planets like uh, all Earth likes like ours, there's going to be gas giants in the in the system. Gas giants suck up all the planet killing meteorites. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> there's so many there's so many uh, you know uh, gamma ray bursts which we thought could easily extinct life. Well, now we look more carefully. No gamma ray bursts are they're just too far apart. The system's too separated. This these accelerations are going to continue. Uh, because the system may be actually rigged a little bit. It may be rigged, self-selected with the phrase, self-organized, self-selected in an evolutionary developmental manner if intelligence has any value to the replication. Because your intelligence, my intelligence, has a lot of value to our replication. So the question I'd like to leave you and your listeners with is, does our civilization's intelligence and the collective set that they're all out there that we might meet do they have value to the universe's replication? Because if they do, then there might be these protective selection effects that have rounded off a lot of the bad corners. And so I think there's only a small subset of things that really are the bad corners we really had to pay attention to. Well, 
Most. Yeah. I, I, we have to pay attention to all the others because of your wisdom component. It's very easy to be unwise and create a dehumanizing path. So I'm totally buying all of that. So maybe that's the most important point is the one you were mentioning is how do we become wiser? So, 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 so fair enough. Great, great points. But let me ask you if the, the Dune scenario is not one of those childproof mechanisms, perhaps. Uh, uh, and, and what I'm talking about here specifically is the 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 future the the future possibility where AI just the singularity doesn't happen for yeah. one reason or another. We have a Butlerian revolution, yes. or we decide simply to forget that technology, like you're giving the examples of nuclear tech and so on. Yes. Uh, and for one reason or another, we end up in the Dune scenario. And maybe that's the child-proofing non-suicide uh, prevention mechanism. Mm. How probable or possible is that, in your opinion? And how do we know if we're alongside this kind of pathway? Well, this is a, this is a fantastic question. And, and uh, you know, it's, it, we got to put our defensive pessimism hat on and imagine all the ways that this couldn't happen. Um, I see very few. That's why I focus so much on um, these existential things, right? Um, I see very few things. Um, let me give you an, uh, uh, let me give you a, a hypothetical. If humans had access to an atom and if humans had access to backyard fusion, let's say, backyard tokamak worked. Some people think, oh, that's a great thing. We get all this free energy. I look at it as saying, oh my God, that would be an implication. We don't live in a childproof universe. Because I could imagine a, a backyard tokamaks of a certain sophistication could allow any kid to make an antimatter bomb in their basement. An antimatter bomb, a, a collection device for anti-hydrogen, let's say. And, and that, I think it was, um, it was David Langford in War in 2080, in 1980, who was the first to kind of calculate what would it be like to have, let's say, a car-sized antimatter bomb in your basement. Well, it would rip the crust right off the earth. That's a planet killer. Okay. That's a singularity killer. We don't live in a universe, it seems, where you can make backyard tokamaks. And I'm very happy about that. Because if we did, then if that model is true, then you could have that human, individual humans could have that kind of power. And then, and then I'd be all for Elon Musk's idea of get the heck off the planet as fast as we can even before we have AI. But I don't think that's the world we're in. I think we have to pay very careful attention to that as a possibility. But what I would argue is if those, if someone was blowing up these nukes, let's say, if someone was ransoming cities, you know, with nukes, let's say, in the late 20th century, or 21st um, century, that would just accelerate the emergence of all of these um, immune systems. It would probably create a much more authoritarian, uh, you know, rights reducing, disempowering transition to a singularity. But I, I don't think it would slow it down. I think it would just create a much less, less wise to use your term, less humanizing, less uh, beneficial transition. So are you saying that the Dune scenario is not likely or not possible? I don't think it's possible. Yeah. I think that's the problem is, okay, it's possible, but it's so improbable that, you know, out of a million civilizations, you might see it once or twice. For example, 
you know, if somebody managed to, you know, like in the risk, right? Okay, I, I got the whole world. Now it's mine. And if I happen to be one of these people who wants to kind of stamp on, you know, the 1984 scenario, right? Well, and I want to stamp on all innovation and, and keep it in my little lab. Well, that could probably last for a lineage for a while, right? For a little while. A certain number of people could keep that you know, I mean, the hermit kingdoms, right? Uh, North Korea, look how stable it's been for a while. But I don't think that on cosmological timescales, that's any of that stable. I think that uh, even if we sent out probes, in my transition hypothesis, we sent out probes to try and, let's say, create a galactic internet, because that's what our goal was, to just kind of grab all the information, have it all come to us, these replicating uh, nanotechnological robot probes. If they had any kind of intelligence to them, any kind of evolutionary and developmental intelligence, any kind of freedom or creativity to them, if they weren't this entirely developmental process, then I think they would just kind of uplift and transcend on their way there. They would go, they would dive into inner space, they would discover these network ethics, they would discover the stability and value of as much individual freedom as possible. And then that system, that network would be very fault tolerant to any of the experiments that happened in any of the individuals. So this is obviously a bunch of huge assumptions here. And, you know, any of these can be knocked out. And I challenge people to do that and welcome that. But yeah, I don't really see from a network perspective how you're going to slow this down other than just killing the whole network. Um, Oh, sorry, how are you going to prevent it? You could slow it down for a long time, and that would be a terrible thing. And that's really where I think the essence of our moral choice lies, is really recognizing just how much pain and suffering and maladaption exists today. And how do we get out of that phase, right? That's really where, that's where we're, we were born into that. We can think to the long term. It's very nice to have that, and it does improve our models to some degree for our action today. But it's really our action today and with the heartbeats that we have that really is where I would say the universe wants us to put most of our effort, right? Is making that thing today a little better and figuring out how, how, to, um, how to do that. John, we've been talking for well over two hours and unfortunately we have to bring our conversation to an end. So let me ask you three quick questions questions here or two quick one and one a little more so first of all what's next for john smart is there another books perhaps another book perhaps you're working on yeah i'm uh finishing the second book called big picture foresight which is kind of global uh or societal global and universal kind of stories about the future it's more futures than foresight it's not methods it's kind of stories and trends and such and I hope to have that out later this year um, on Amazon, along with Introduction to Foresight, which is the current one that's on Amazon. Um, I encourage you guys to give me reviews there, honest reviews. I really appreciate that. Um, and then at the end of my book, I can, the last, I think, two pages of the book, I describe Futurepedia. So what what uh, what's next for our nonprofit is we want to launch a kind of a a set of we want to, want to launch a wiki that includes foresight tools and methods description of them and future stories both 
around important issues. And as you probably know, if you try and do that on Wikipedia, they actually push it off. They don't want speculation on the future. So there's a real need for a good wiki that does that. And I have a network of futurists, I've friends I've developed over the last 20 years, and I'm going to be asking a number of them to help me and of course anyone in the general community who wants to do this just to create so on a topic there would be there would be probable possible uh, preferable preferable and preventable all four of those is going to be little sections on under each topic and then uh you know we want to also honor people who've written about the future in the past and fortunately i can steal all these pages off of wikipedia because of the gp GPL, and I can just take the futures components and then stick those in. So I think that I'm, I'm hoping that over the next, you know, say 10 years, uh, we can build a nice little resource for people. So when they Google the topic and they want to see kind of a oh, crowd edited version of what the future of that topic might look like, that they'll go to futurepedia.org and, and get some value there. So that's, I guess that's my big, my big project uh, beyond the book. And then Maybe most importantly, raising my kids, man. You know, I want to, uh, th that's my autopoiesis. My main autopoiesis is these little, these little monkeys and the, the development, the de development is the most miraculous and amazing thing in the universe, in my opinion, how it, and, and a seed you cannot even see expands to create us. How is that even possible, man? Figuring out that. And putting that into our, our tech and our society, you know, and, and of course, it's evolutionary capabilities. But both of those, putting those in, that's going to be the big magic. I just really enjoy uh, watching them grow up. Where can our audience find more about you and your work? Um, I guess they can go to uh, foresightu.com, our website uh, for Foresight University. Um, and... Um, if they're interested in the systems theories of change, they can go to evodevouniverse.com uh, to the, this evolutionary developmental community. There's uh, about 150 publishing scholars there. We have a nice little listserv you can join if you if you like this evolutionary and developmental uh, approach to complexity. Um, there's a little community we have there. We've done two conferences, and then. Um, and then I have some kind of historical sites, acceleration. Uh, accelerating.org for Acceleration Studies Foundation, and uh, I think it's called uh, Acceleration Watch, uh, which is kind of my first uh, website on kind of acceleration from a big picture perspective. And those are useful, but we're, we're hoping to change our name to Future Media Foundation to kind of, you know, from ASF to that. Um, and hopefully we'll do that over the next year or so. Um, because uh, really, we think the Futurepedia is maybe the that's the most useful contribution that we can give uh, in our little nonprofit. So, John, I know you have to go, but before you let us go, what's the most important thing you want us to take away from this conversation with us? The one message, perhaps, that you want to send us away with? The one message is that the world is actually amazing. Networks always win. And... Foresight is your superpower. It's your hidden superpower. Uh, the more you use it in your own lives, uh, with your families, and then you know, with the investments you make and, and with the uh, of your time, your energy, your dollars, um, it's your hidden superpower. And uh, the more you give yourself permission to use it, 
the more amazing your and the world's futures get, I think. Even with all the even with all the pitfalls and the valleys we have to cross on the way there. Foresight is your superpower. Love it, John. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, sir. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 